give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is, uh, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then he, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with Fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, I've always thought it a little bit curious that, um, that the, the Christmas song, Do You Hear What I Hear, is called Do You Hear What I Hear. Uh, it's, it's like four verses. One of them asks, do you hear what I hear? It's not really a chorus. There really isn't a chorus. The first verse is, do you see what I see? That would make more sense to me. At least you could justify it by saying, well, it's the first verse. And so we just went with that. Never really fully understand, understood why it's called, do you hear what I hear? It just doesn't make any sense. But we ask questions like that. Do you see what I see? Sometimes because we're in shock. Like, am, am I really seeing that? Do, do you see what I see? Is this real? Is that, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Do I actually understand what I'm seeing? Do you see that too? Because if two of us see it, then I can't be crazy. Sometimes it's just, Sort of the idea of seeing something cool and you want to make sure that people are looking at the same thing you're looking at, that they're not missing something, that it's about kind of them and not really about 
you? Well, this passage asks us, do you see what they see? Are you looking through the eyes of certain people, different groups of people within this passage? Um, it asks us if, if we can see what, what really three sets of eyes see in this passage. Notice first, we need to look through the eyes of the crowd. We find this crowd, verse 2, following Jesus. Jesus has gone across the Sea of Galilee. He's headed over to the other side. And there's this large crowd following him. And, and if there was a period there, you might get excited, right? Oh, look at all these people. They're following Jesus, right? See, it's, it's become fashionable. Or at least it has been in recent years. Maybe it's faded in the last couple. For Christians to call themselves Christ followers instead of Christians. You could read that verse and kind of go, oh, they're just following Christ. Like, that's a good thing. If the sentence stopped after following him, we could get excited. But the sentence doesn't. We get an explanation. We get clarification. We, we get the reason for their excitement. We get the reason for them running around the lake to get to where Jesus is. And their excitement is, he's been doing cool stuff. Right? They're following Jesus because they have seen the signs that he was doing on the sick. He's healed the lame. There's a paralyzed man just in the previous chapter. Now walking around, doing stuff, like going to work that he's never been able to do before. People see that. And there were other signs and miracles that he performed that have obviously gotten their attention. It's a picture of people who are following Jesus because they're fascinated and curious. What's he doing? Could he do that for me? Like, what are these miracles he's performing? What are these things he's doing for all these sick people? They're treating him sort of like a, a carnival sideshow. Right? You've got to go in that booth. You've got to see what's in there. And so you go in the booth at the carnival and see what's in there. And you walk away really not changed. Or maybe this, maybe this crowd wanted him to do something for them. Maybe they thought, well, if, if he's healed the lame, if he's healed the sick, if he's been able to, to perform these miracles for other people, I mean, if I, have a, if I hurt my finger, right? If I'm wearing a brace on my thumb or on my ankle or on my arm, he can make it better. He can just poof. Fix it all. Yes, I watched you walk in. You know who you are. Maybe they thought he could make them wealthy. He'll, he'll solve all my problems. If he can do all of these things, well, then, then he, could, he could give me the stuff that I want. He could fix my car. He could, um, he could make me rich. He could give me all of these things. Or maybe, and this seems to be the case for this crowd, maybe they're looking for a candidate. I was in Starbucks the other day. 
overheard a conversation. Clearly one of them is either running for office or thinking about it. One of them was a democratic strategist. That much I got. I didn't, I was trying to work. I was trying to get stuff done. I kind of regret not paying more attention, to be honest with you. But you know, there are people out there looking for the right person to run for that office so we can make sure we can get one of our people into that seat. And that, it seems, is what this crowd wanted. Because you notice down in verses 14 and 15, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, and after the basket full, baskets full of leftovers are all gathered up, they say, this is our guy, right? Notice what they say. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. It's, it's a, they're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for some sort of ruler. They're looking for someone to fulfill this old covenant, old Testament office. They use the word prophet, but notice Jesus knows that they really want to make him king. They're essentially conflating sort of the Old Testament prophet, priest, king into one place. That's the right thing to do. But they're emphasizing the earthly rather than the spiritual. They've seen the sign. They're convinced this is the guy that we're looking for. If he can turn this little bit of bread into food for all of these people, then this is the guy who can overthrow Rome. This is the guy that can, well, establish Israel's borders and give her a ruler and make her an independent nation again. Which is not what Jesus came to do. That would be misunderstanding the mission and work of Jesus. You know, there are people today who want Jesus for what he can do for them. There are people who want Jesus and they sort of model it by their lives. They want Jesus as long as it's convenient. They want Jesus and what he asks as long as it's comfortable. They want Jesus as long as he can do these things for me. But as soon as he asks something for me to do for him, I'm out. They want Jesus they don't want the true prophet, priest, and king that the, the Old Testament anticipates, that the New Testament sort of reveals and makes clear to us. They want a Jesus who can heal them and then leave them alone. Go on about his merry way. Do you see what the crowd sees? They see a, a person, a Jesus, who can give them what they want. Second, I want you to look through the eyes of the disciples. Okay, not all 12 are named. That's fair. Two are given by name. But it's clear that Philip and Andrew really are speaking for the 12 in the first scene. And the whole of the 12 are treated sort of all together in the second scene. Notice Jesus asks Philip a question in verse 5. Where can we get bread for all these people? Philip doesn't answer that question. He answers a slightly different question. He answers sort of the next question or maybe 
the second question after this one. His response is, we don't have that kind of money. We, we can't afford. It doesn't matter where. Like, Jesus, we could all 12 go to a different Dollar General and look for bread and come back because you know there's a Dollar General within walking distance in every direction from wherever they are. They could run to Dollar General. They could gather up bread. They could come and they wouldn't have enough money to buy enough bread for that many. There's 5,000 men, we're told. <coughs> 10, 15,000 people. Some have even said could be as high as 20. The point is, there are 5,000 men. How many more than that there are, the, it doesn't tell us. But they don't have that kind of money. He even gives a dollar amount. Verse 7, 200 denarii. A denarius is basically um, uh, your daily wage for your typical laborer guy. So imagine working July, January through August. Just to be able to afford the bread it would take to feed this dinner party. And only then they would get not a lot, not enough. They would get a little. Did you notice verse 7? 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for them, for each of them to get a little. Philip says, we can't afford that, Jesus. Andrew finds a little boy and, and says, look, we've got this little boy. He's got um, uh, some food. He's got five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Uh, but even that's not enough. And you do realize a loaf, right? We're not talking... We're not even talking a loaf of sunbeam sandwich bread. You're talking more like a big fat yeast roll, right? You're talking sort of a dinner roll, a personal cake kind of size. You're not talking even a, a full loaf of sunbeam bread. And for that matter, the fish would be closer to sardine than king mackerel, right? You catch a 15 to 20 pound king mackerel and you got a couple of those, you're still not feeding 5,000 people. But this would be closer to the one pound size, not the 15 to 20 pound size. The point is, what, what Philip sees is we don't have the money for that. We can't afford that. We can't make that happen. What Andrew sees is we have some, but that some is way too little. That some isn't nearly enough. We have some food, but it isn't enough food. Do you see what the disciples see? They see their lack. They see what they don't have. They see emptiness. They see inability. They see that they just don't have enough. They focus on the fact that this is an impossible situation. Jesus, you asked me where we can get bread for this many people. That's impossible. We can't afford it. 
There isn't enough time. We, we don't have enough money here. What I really wish is that I could see their faces as they each carried a basket of leftovers. Right? Twelve baskets of leftovers that they collect these whatever the people didn't. Now look, and keep in mind, this isn't 12 baskets of everybody pinched off a piece of bread, passed the loaf down to the next person, and got their little communion wafer size. of. This is Thanksgiving dinner, back up from the table, pat your belly, I can't even get up and move to the couch to watch the football game. That's how much I've eaten. That's the impression the passage gives you. They've eaten their fill, we're told. I'd love to see their faces. A basket. Leftovers. Now, perhaps you're wondering, why 12? Because some people will go, oh, well, the 12 tribes of, uh, tribes of Israel. See, it's just this sort of... I don't think that's the case at all. I think the... the re- of course, humor me. Number one, if the Bible doesn't tell you, you don't know. Like we need to learn. We need to learn to be comfortable with stopping where the Bible stops. That that would be something that we as a people should really learn to, to master. I can I'm confident here because the Bible tells me this. The Bible doesn't tell me that, so really I can't know. But it is interesting that there is one basket per disciple. There's one basket for each of them. So what are they going to do with this basket? Well, I think it serves two purposes. I think on the one hand, it sort of serves as a, as a challenge and encouragement to their faith. Each of them had their doubts. There isn't enough. We can't afford it. This is impossible. And Jesus says, it's impossible with you. It's not impossible for me. And in fact, I can show you how not impossible, how impossible. Can I do that? That's a cool word. How not impossible this actually is for me. There's going to be leftovers. And you're going to carry that basket as a a bit of a reminder of your doubt, your own sort of temptation to to see the lack rather than to see Jesus as the provider. It reminds them that Jesus can do abundantly more than we can ask or think. But there's also something else going on here. Turn back to chapter four. Um, And let me just sort of remind you of uh, an instruction that Jesus gave the disciples back in chapter four. Chapter four is this um, the scene with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And in verse thirty five, he tells the disciples, there are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is commissioning his disciples to pay attention to the harvest. It's their job to go gather it in. And is it not the essence of Christian ministry 
to take the message of Jesus's hospitality and invite in those who need to come in. They each now have a basket of Jesus's work, if you will, to take to others and invite them to this same feast. What Jesus has done for the 5,000, he can and will also do through his disciples for others. For that matter, in the next scene, the disciples are in a boat. They're paddling, uh, rowing their way across the Sea of Galilee. They've gone ahead because Jesus, at the end of verse 15, has withdrawn sort of up on the mountain off by himself. And you notice the sort of the reason for their fear on this boat. It actually isn't really the storm. It isn't really the wind. It's the fact that verse 17, it's dark and Jesus isn't there. And then all of a sudden, sort of like a, one of the stories in Charlestown Ghosts. There's a man walking on the water towards them. It's, it's dark. Maybe not midnight dark. Maybe not pitch black dark, but it's past dusk. It's dark. The sea is choppy and they think they see a ghost. They're convinced they see a ghost. Their fear isn't that, that it's windy and the seas are choppy. Their fear is that they're afraid Jesus has left them. They feel alone. They feel left out. Jesus sent them to row on ahead. I'm going to go over here by myself. And you get this sense that they think he's forgotten us. He's left me. He doesn't know where we are. I, 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 surely, if you see a somebody walking on water, you're in the dark, in choppy seas, you're going to get nervous. You're going to get scared. You too would be frightened. But they've just seen all these signs of Jesus exercising power and authority and control over the created order. This is nothing for him. And as soon as he gets in the boat, the created order, the wind, the sea, even time and space yield to him. As soon as he's in the boat, they are where they're going. They'd only gotten halfway-ish. And as soon as Jesus got in the boat, they were there the rest of the way. We see through the eyes of the crowd. We see through the eyes of the disciples. Thirdly, I want you to see through the eyes of Jesus. Because John told you something that the other gospel writers don't tell you. And, and the feeding of the 5,000 is the one miracle that appears in all four gospels. John gives you a little bit of information that the others don't. When Jesus asked John the question, verse 6, he said this to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. 
Jesus asked Philip a question to expose Jesus, I mean, Philip's thoughts to expose not so much to Jesus, but to Philip himself, to the other disciples, to hear what's going on in your, I want you to actually say it out loud because I know what I'm about to do. And I need you to know that the thoughts in your head are insufficient, are inadequate. Jesus asked Philip about feeding the 5,000 because Jesus already knew how the end was going to play out. You know, already, you can apply just that much for us, can you not? How often do you and I get overwhelmed with things that aren't a thing to Jesus? How often do we have these big, huge things in our life that for Jesus aren't a thing at all. The cancer diagnosis rocks you to your core. To Jesus, it's not even a thing. The death of a loved one, for Jesus, not even a thing. He knows the end from the beginning. Rebellious children make you sort of pull out your hair. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. A future that's uncertain to us, Jesus knows the end from the beginning. The fact that he asks Philip this question, knowing full well how everything was going to play out, reminds Philip and reminds us he knows the end already. And he is at work bringing about his purposes, not ours. It's a cause for trust and for hope and for confidence in him. The answer to the question comes not from Philip, but from Jesus himself in verses 10 and 11. The answer is, the solution is, Jesus hosted a dinner party for 5,000 of his closest friends with not nearly enough food. Jesus is a host. He invites you to come and sit and to feed and to feast and to be filled. And he serves these 5,000 or more with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And verse 12, the people ate their fill. You see that the disciples saw what they didn't have. They saw what they lacked. They saw not enough money. They saw not enough food. But Jesus knew all along that he would provide and how he would provide. But he doesn't just barely give them enough. He doesn't say, here, take a taste. Right? He's not, he's not doing the little sample thing in the back of the grocery store where you can sort of grab one or two. There's leftovers. He has more than enough for each and every one of you and then some. And he wants you to be amazed that he provides so freely, so willingly, and so abundantly. Jesus is a gracious and abundant host. And then in verse 21... Jesus gets in the boat and the, the winds quit. The waves stop. The boat gets to where 
He needs to be where the boat is supposed to be. Every aspect of creation is subject to him. And so when you see these passages through Jesus's eyes, you see someone who cares for his people and provides for them and loves them and knows the end even from the beginning. But John doesn't tell us something that Matthew does. There's a, there's a little piece. Turn back with me uh, to uh, Matthew 14. And let me just show you a connection that Matthew makes that John doesn't make for us. Uh, Matthew 14, verses 23 and 24, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But, and, and that word sort of gives you, meanwhile, back on the boat. Meanwhile, down on the Sea of Galilee, Right? That's what you're supposed to read there. He's by himself on the mountain praying. Meanwhile, the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The disciples were in the boat, in the wind and the waves, thinking Jesus isn't here. That was the connection John made. Dark had come and Jesus wasn't yet with them. And they're in that boat thinking Jesus isn't here. Meanwhile, Jesus is on the mountain praying for them. He knows their condition. He knows the wind and the waves. And he doesn't just know it. He's praying for you while you're in it. Matthew connects for us this notion that not only does Jesus know exactly what's going on with the twelve in the boat, but that he's actually praying for them while they're there. You ever have that feeling? Jesus doesn't know. And if he does know, I'm not really sure he cares. Jesus is praying for you. Not just for y'all, not just for for you. That's the, the message of this passage. When we look through the eyes of Jesus, we see a compassionate, loving, welcoming, abundantly caring and praying Savior for his people. When you're in the storm, when you're battered by the wind and the waves, remember, Jesus is praying for you. By way of application, though, I I need to ask a fourth question. Not just do we see through the eyes of the crowd, the eyes of the disciples, the eyes of Jesus. What if we were to look through your eyes? What are you looking at? What What do you see? What if we got sort of into your head and saw what you see? Would you see the danger? Would you see the lack? Would you see the things you don't have? Would you see the things that the people around you do have and you kind of wished you had? 
Do you see gifts and graces in others that you don't have? And you're kind of jealous. And that's really not fair because Jesus, if you really loved me, you would give me the gifts that those people have because those gifts are cool gifts. And I kind of want those gifts. But you haven't given me those gifts. And that's just not fair. You're mean. Do you do you see the lack? Do you see the absence? Do you do you fear because it whatever it might be is impossible? Do you see sadness and dejection because the the cause is a hopeless cause? Or do you see Jesus? Now, notice the question isn't do you see the way Jesus sees? That's not the question. It's not your job to feed the 5,000. It's your job to look to Christ who does. It's not your job to go off on the mountain by yourself and to pray for all the pains in the world. It's your job to look to Christ who prays for you. Your hope isn't that you see the way Jesus sees. Your hope is in seeing Jesus who sees what Jesus sees. That's your hope. That's your confidence. It's that you look not the way Jesus, not just the way Jesus looks at your circumstances, not that you learn to see your circumstances his way, but that you learn to see him despite your circumstances. Your circumstances don't determine his view of you. You don't get to say, because I'm struggling, because I lack, because I don't have the gifts I want, because I don't have, because we don't have enough, because we can't, then Jesus doesn't love me. That's not the, story, the, the, the point of this passage. It's actually quite the opposite. That even through your circumstances, whether it's not enough or scary, frightening stuff, Jesus loves you and knows you and prays for you and has provided for you through it all. Jesus provides abundantly. He invites you to, to rest in him and to trust, in, to trust him with your circumstances, even if they're dark, difficult providences. You have a Savior who knows and who prays for you. This passage says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that you would so show us Christ that we see not with the eyes of the crowd who want a savior who can, who is sort of their, I don't know, puppet king. Uh, who want a um, I don't know, a cosmic genie to, that they can sort of rub the lamp and get what they want and then send him back into his place. That we would see not with the eyes of the disciples who see our circumstances and think we don't have enough and we can't and we're lack and this is dangerous and scary, but that instead we would lift our eyes and see Christ. Because in and through our circumstances, Lord Jesus, you love us. And even right now, whatever it is we're going through, whatever it is we endure, you are praying for us. Would you remind us of your love, your abundant provision? And then would you use us to take that message of hope to others, to carry that basket, as it were, 
to those who also need the bread of life. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.